New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. The Eisenhower years of the 1950s were defined by conformity, consumerism, and conservatism, plus the emergence of the Beat Movement, starring Jack Kerouac, Lawrence Ferlinghetti, and Allen Ginsberg, among others. By the end of the decade, a new era of social, spiritual, sexual, and psychological revolution was beginning. By the end of the century, Americans would have a new outlook on religion and new ways of practicing medicine and the mind-body-spirit movement would make things like yoga, organic produce, and alternative medicine commonplace. The story of how it all began serves as the focus for this edition of New Dimensions with our guest, Don Latin. Don Latin is a journalist covering alternative and mainstream religious movements and figures in America. His work has appeared in dozens of U.S. magazines and newspapers. Latin has worked as a consultant and commentator of Dateline, Primetime, Good Morning America, Nightline, Anderson Cooper 360, and PBS's Religion and Ethics Newsweekly. He's the author of Jesus Freaks, a true story of murder and madness on the evangelical edge. Following our bliss, how spiritual ideals of the 60s shape our lives today. And as co-author of Shopping for Faith, American Religion in the New Millennium. He's also the author of the Harvard Psychedelic Club, how Timothy Leary, Ram Dass, Houston Smith, and Andrew Weil killed the 50s and ushered in a new age for America. Join us for the next hour as we explore how the 1960s changed the world we live in today with our guest, Don Latin. My name is Michael Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Don, welcome. Thank you, Michael. It's great to be on your show. Uh, so, Don, I just like, so what What actually led you to to think about writing this book? What What, what brought you to that place? Well, the actual book project, as opposed to the kind of the idea, but the book project started out, I was thought I was going to be helping Houston Smith ghostwrite his autobiography because he had written a manuscript and, you know, he's in his 90s and it needed some work, had some great stories, but it needed reorganization and, and some more interviewing and things. So I started doing that for one reason or another. Uh, that didn't work out. And so I was talking with uh, my editor at, at Harper, Harper One. And uh, you know, I'd heard I'd heard about because I know Houston's experience with Albert and Leary back in the '60s. He was a, a MIT philosophy professor and was very intimately involved in the early years of Leary and Albert's work with psychedelics. Um, so I knew all about that. And of course, I knew you know Ram Dass and Albert's story. And I'd heard that and Andy Weil was somehow involved in in 
bringing down Leary and Alpert at Harvard, and but I don't think the story had ever been told. So I started doing a little snooping around, uh, being an investigative reporter, and started finding some interesting things. And uh, so then I proposed, and, and in consultation with Mark Tauber, who also, uh, he, he had heard the same thing, and Mark Tauber, who's the publisher at Harper One, he said, why don't you do a book on, why don't you start looking into that? And I'm so glad it did, because it was you know, my own project rather than ghostwriting you know, Houston's book. So I'm really glad that it, it worked out the way it did. Yeah. yeah. So... Uh, Let's start out with Timothy Leary. A lot of people are not aware that he really started out as a very traditional uh, psychologist. Yeah, I wouldn't actually say he was traditional. He was very uh, respected and successful. Uh, his area was personality assessment. And he wrote a book that was published in the late 1950s, which was named the Book of the Year by the American Psychological Association. Um, there's even a personality assessment test called the Leary, which I hear they still use sometimes, like 50 years later. Um, so he was uh, an up-and-coming clinical psychologist, and he was, but I wouldn't say he was traditional because even before he took psychedelics, he was already already questioning the power relationship between patient and therapist and researcher and subject and doing some very avant-garde, uh, having a very avant-garde approach to that those two relationships, which he carried over into the psychedelic work. Involved, which involved taking psychedelic drugs with the subjects and talking to them mutually about what they were feeling. So, and that that was what was radical about his initially radical about his psychedelic research. Not that he was taking psychedelics. A lot of researchers were were experimenting in psychedelics in the fifties, way way before Leary. But what was interesting and unusual about Leary is he was taking the and his graduate students were taking the drugs with the subjects, and a whole other dynamic develops when you when you do it that way. Yeah. Well, Frank Barron, a man that uh, uh, associate of of Larry, he and uh, Frank Barron did a Kaiser study. That's right, which was very interesting. That's right. Yeah, yeah. They they were both working. Um, I'm not sure. I guess Barron. Larry was definitely working at Kaiser. Um, he had Larry had come to Berkeley to get his PhD, and he got a job just when Kaiser was starting its psychology department. You know, there was actually a big boom in psychology after World War II because so many GIs were coming back, you know, with what we now call post-traumatic stress disorder, what yes. they used to call being shell-shocked or yes. wasn't talked about as much then. But uh, so Leary uh, did some some surveys uh, on patients who were waiting for psychiatric traditional talk therapy and others that had gotten it, others that never got it for another reason, and basically wound out, found out that it didn't really matter whether they got the psychotherapy or not. The outcome was more or less the same. So he, because of that, he really started questioning the value of traditional talk therapy. Well, it re really made him a hero with, it, with the American Psychological yeah. Association. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the psychology's dead. Yeah. Uh, the... Um, uh, Herbert Kelman also came into Leary's life. Yeah, yeah. Well, Kelman was an associate at at, at Harvard, and uh, Kelman and a couple other of his colleagues they were very critical of the approach that that Leary was was taking, and uh, and were also instrumental in in the, the events that led to him him leaving. But but none quite as central to the story as as Andrew Weil, which is what I write about in the book. Right. Yeah. The um, the famous house in the hills in Berkeley where. Larry would invite uh, uh, 
Yeah, on Queens Road. Yeah, yes. <laughs> invite people up and talk about that. that yeah. It's a great story. Well, uh, it's a tragic, I mean, it just starts out as a tragic story, really. Yes, right. um, yeah, Leary, the, the, Leary kept that house well into the 60s and 70s, oh. but this was back in the mid-1950s. And like I say, he was, it's about the time he was at Kaiser. And uh, he was married. He had two young children. And he was having some you know, troubles with his wife, Mary uh, Ann. Yeah, uh, he was having a, an affair, and apparently she was also. They had an open relationship, which was kind of unusual for that for that time. Um, but my understanding was the deal they had was they could have open relation, an open relationship, but they couldn't fall in love with their lover. And she was afraid Leary was doing that and was going to leave her. And he was actually he was thinking about doing that. And she uh, that really. Um, upset her and she was already drinking a lot they were both heavy drinkers and she was also taking tranquilizers and so she was uh, not in a great state of mind and they had an argument one night after party martini fueled party and uh, the next day was Leary's 35th birthday and uh, they went to sleep and when he woke up she was gone and he heard the car running in the garage and she had gone and killed herself and left a note saying that uh, uh, I love the children very much, you know, please take care of them. And, you know, it was, uh, the note was actually published in the next day's newspaper. In those days, I guess the police would give the notes to uh, oh. to the reporters because that's how I got it. That's how I got it. I found it in an old newspaper clipping. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, Leary's children were there. They, you know, more or less saw, you know, they saw the ambulance coming and everything. And they um, So that was a real, I think that really started off what you know you call your midlife crisis i mean that event in leary's life and he was i think age 35 he was th- yeah it was on his 35th birthday right, which may yeah. not have been a coincidence uh you know she was trying to make a point or something i don't know but uh anyway he uh actually wound up briefly marrying a woman he was seeing at that time he leary was married four or five times depending on how you how you count and uh but he went off to Europe after that. He quit his job. Yeah. Uh, he, as, as I said, he was, uh, you know, wondering whether traditional talk therapy, psychology, approach like psychology was was effective. He took the and, children with him. He took the children with him, and he was going to go off and write the great American novel. And he had something of a, n- a nervous breakdown and some physical health problems there. And uh, he was living he he was living in Italy, Spain, Spain, and then he was living in Italy. And he had some money, uh, you know, he cashed in some insurance policies or something. Uh, he had s- some money, but he went through it pretty quickly. And he was he was a mess. And um, and then he he ran into uh, well through Frank Barron, he met uh, a guy named David McClellan. He was in Florence, I think. Yeah. At, at Flor- in Florence, yeah. And uh, they went out and you know to a cafe and had lunch and you know over a bottle of Chiani, we're talking about the future of psychology in America. And uh, and uh, McClellan uh, was also involved in personality work and personality assessment. And he had read Leary's book. And uh, according to Leary, McClellan said something like. You're just what we need to shake up the psychology department at at, at Harvard. Now, whether or not he actually said that, <laughs> Le- Leary was notorious for you know rewriting history, but yeah, sure. it's a great line, so we all use it, yeah. you know, because yeah. he certainly did. So uh, he offered he offered Leary a, a three year appointment, and uh, Leary returned to the states and and started out uh, at, at Harvard. This is maybe like 59, 58, 59. Yeah, I mean, and it, it was a great story when when. Uh, McClellan came back to Harvard, and Richard Alpert, Dick Alpert, was running the 
that department, the mm-hmm. social relations department? Department of Social Relations. Of social yeah, relations. it was sort of social psychology was kind of what they were into. And yeah. he said, uh, oh, by the way, I've got a new guy coming. And, right. and Alfred <laughs> said, and he said, well, we've got a closet down the... Yeah, yeah, they were, the, 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 the department was booming. Like I say their psychology was hot at the time and there were no office space. So they put Leary in this, uh, this little, basically it had been a broom closet, a large closet, which was his, his first office. And um, and that's, you know, that's when Richard Albert and Timothy Leary started working together. Right. Was, um, Amazing. Uh, yeah. The connections. Uh, yeah. Um, let's move on to Andy Weil. Uh, um he has an interesting background too. He he basically w- w- was uh, grew up in Philadelphia, and he had a very positive experience because they had a family doctor, and and he yeah. also was a very much a very inward child. He was an only child, um, and so he had a very what as he described. I think he uses the word very active inner life. Um, and uh, but he's also a very smart kid. I mean, he's a very smart guy. Yes. You know, I mean, and uh, so um, and yeah. Well, he talks about this traditional kind of doctor he had. You know, still made house calls and you know didn't just wasn't just writing prescriptions and um, and and that was his idea of what a doctor should should be. Um, and I know, partly, I think maybe inspired him to think about going to medical school. Um, so uh, so he he came to Harvard. With his life pretty much planned out. I mean, he is a very, you know, uh, kind of calculating guy in some ways. And uh, he knew what he wanted to do. He wanted to, uh, he was interested in botany. And and uh, he had he had read uh, The Doors of Perception, Aldous Huxley's 1954 book about his mescaline trip, which is, as you know, would go on to be sort of the book of Genesis for the psychedelic <laughs> drug culture of the 60s in a few years. And uh, I think he'd also read this Life magazine article that Gordon Wasson had written uh, about finding magic mushrooms you know, down in Mexico. And uh, anyway, he was, interest, he was interested in, 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 in all, all of that. So when he came to Harvard with that expectation, yeah. Now, we're going to continue our exploration uh of Andy Wiles' uh, origins as well, with our guest, Don Lathan. He's the author of The Harvard Psychedelic Club, How Timothy Leary, Ram Dass, Houston Smith, and Andrew Weil Killed the 50s and Ushered in a New Age for America. My name is Michael Toms, and you're listening to New Dimensions. My guest is Don Latin. He's the author of the Harvard Psychedelic Club. Don, we were talking about Andy Weil, and I was thinking before he actually got to Harvard, um, he had taken a trip around the world, and um, 
that trip was influential in his life. It, it, it was, yeah, yeah. In a way, it was his freshman year because I actually say in the book I, I corrected this in the in the next later printing, but I said he was a freshman at Harvard. Actually, he, he his freshman year was this round the world trip, which he he arranged somehow to do that. He got a scholarship. He got a scholarship. Yeah. Like I say, he was a brilliant kid. You know, yes. he's obviously destined for Harvard. He gets this scholarship to basically go around the world and study all these and, and be exposed to all these different cultures. And as part of that, he goes to India. And I think that's where he first starts, you know, get, gets interested in, in, in Indian religion and Eastern mysticism and, and has some, you know, um, encounters with some um, sadhus and yes. <laughs> sages down by the river. And right. he talks about it in, in, in the book and also in some of his books, he's talked about this. this. And so, yeah, well, so when he got, by the time he got to Harvard, he was, he, 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 his, his mind was just, you know, he, he was interested in all kinds of things. I mean, he, and he was interested in uh, ethnobotany. And he was a student of uh, Richard Schultes, who was uh, doing a lot of research around, you know, magic mushrooms in Mexico and ethnobotany. And uh, Weil's undergraduate thesis at Harvard was uh, nutmeg as a psychotropic agent. Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, so he was, you know, he was very interested in, in, in this. And he, but he is also planning on going to Harvard Medical School. I mean, he already had that. He had his, he had his life planned out. Right. Um, so he, his idea was he'd 60 to 64, he'd go to Harvard undergraduate, and then he'd 64 to 68, he'd go to Harvard Medical School, which he did, but there were a few interesting bumps along the way, yeah, <laughs> and the, which definitely. we talk about in the book. You know? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. What yeah. were some of those bumps? Well, I mean, the the, the, the sort of the center, sort of the, the central story in my book is about what happened when Andy Weil, who was, uh, you know, 18, 19 years old, uh, Ronnie Winston, who was an undergraduate friend of his, heard about these psychedelic drug, the psilocybin uh, uh, research that uh, Larry and Albert were doing at Harvard. And they went to volunteer to be research subjects and were told by Leary and then later by Alpert uh, that they'd agreed to only use undergraduates as research subjects, not graduate students. And they were disappointed, but um, Weil decided to go ahead and do his own version of his undergraduate version of the grown-ups research project at his dorm at Harvard. And uh, by forging a letter on some Harvard stationery, which he was infamous for doing, by the way, writing these phony letters on forged uh, on stationery to get a hold of mm -hmm. as practical jokes often, you yes. know. Uh, but this he, he wrote, I think, to Delta Chemical Company and some other chemical companies. And it even even contacted Aldous Huxley, who was in Cambridge, Massachusetts at the time, yes. lecturing at, uh, at, at MIT. And uh, so anyway, he wound up getting his own supply of mescaline. I mean, Leary and Albert were using psilocybin. Uh, so he and Ronnie Winston and some other undergraduates at, at Clavery Hall uh, started their own little research project. And they weren't just, you know, college students getting high. They were actually like writing up reports and all of this and, and doing this investigation. But they they still wanted to be involved in the, the real research project that Leary and Albert were doing. And, and they were told they couldn't. So what happened was... Um, Ronnie Winston runs into Richard Alpert at a party. This is like a year later. And they strike up a conversation and a, a friendship, kind of a mentoring relationship, I guess you could say in some ways. And Alpert decides, despite the university guidelines, to uh, lead some, a couple psilocybin sessions with Ronnie Winston. And um, Andrew Weil, who had been Ronnie's guide on his first mescaline trip, yes. uh, got very jealous 
because uh, why was uh, Ronnie being you know brought into the inner circle and the in crowd and and uh, let, 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 let why is he part of the party and I'm not? Uh, and I think so. Jealousy was part of his his motivation for for deciding to bring down Richard Alpert and 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 Timothy Timothy Leary, and the way he went about it was uh, he really played hardball. I mean he, uh, he he started this investigation as a reporter at the Harvard Crimson. He was already writing some arts stories and theater reviews and stuff at the Crimson, but he decided he convinced them that Leary and Alpert were were this this research project, this Harvard psilocybin research project, was spinning out of control, which in some ways it was. Yes, and um, decided to go after them. And they, but they couldn't. And there were other undergraduates who had been brought in against the university guidelines. And so, but they couldn't get anyone to testify or to admit that because they were all, you know, thought it was important work or they were having a good time yes, or, right, or whatever. Yeah. And so, in order to, and and Weil was also working as a spy for the Harvard administration, who were tr- was trying to get evidence that they had given the drugs to undergraduates. At the same time, he was working as a journalist, which is a real conflict of interest if yes, you're a journalist. Uh, and uh, but no one would no one would do that. So they went to Ronnie Winston's father, who was Harry Winston of the Harry Winston Diamond Jewelry uh, Company, f- famous jewelry designer, prominent East Coast family. And Weil went and basically told Harry Winston, "We're going to put your son's name in the paper as part of this drug scandal unless he admits to the university that uh, Professor Alpert gave him psilocybin." So under pressure from this threat, Ronnie Winston went to Nathan Pusey's office, the president of Harvard at the time, and was asked, did Professor Alpert give you psilocybin? And, uh, and Ronnie Winston paused and said, yes, sir, he did. And it was the most educational experience I've had at Harvard. <laughs> well, they didn't care about that. They, they got, that's how they got the goods on Leary and then also Alpert. And that was the beginning of the end very quickly for their career at, at Harvard. And so it was Andy Weil who really brought, brought them down. Yeah, and so there was this. Uh, did, did they ever? For, did they, was there ever? Did they ever forgive him? Did did did, Al, did Al- Leary, Leary Leary did? Um, I think Leary did, according to to Weil and others. Leary did before he died. Um, Alpert, who of course goes on to be Ram Dass, uh, he. On the surface, they have. They even appeared at a couple events. While even had a fundraiser to help raise money for medical bills for Ramdas when he had some medical issues. But if you talk to Ramdas and you talk to Ramdas's friends, he had he has never forgiven Ronnie Winston, and he's. And I talked to him about it in the book, and I and, and I and I quote him in the book, basically saying he wished he could, he should be able to. Here he is, he's Ram Dass. He's you know, um, he's supposed to be enlightened or, or something. He's done all this psychological work and this drugs and and meditation. And but when he talks about Ronnie Winston, there's still this edge in his voice, you know. There's because because of, of the way he went about it. Um, you know, in a way, they probably would have left Harvard anyway. I mean, they were they were destined for <laughs> a, a, Winston, bigger, a bigger stage. Winston or Andy Weil. That, when you mentioned Winston, what, you yeah. talking, what about Andy Weil? Forgive me, Andy Weil, for yeah. what he did. Yeah, and I'm sorry. Andy yeah. Weil for what he did. Yes. Yeah, so I misspoke. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for An- An- Andy Weil. He never really forgave An- Andy Weil. Um, and um, there are other people who are still angry at Andy Weil, too. I mean, I interviewed some other people who were involved in this research. And, you know, because Andy Weil, he was interviewing these guys and handing and off the record private interviews with, uh, you know, faculty members and, uh, and other graduate students. And Andy was giving those transcripts of those interviews to the administration that were supposed to be off the record for to the story. So there's a lot of hard feelings, you know, and, and he feels really bad about it. I mean, he had tried to apologize. He's not proud of what he did. You know, he was his 19-year-old 
ambitious kid, yes. you know, um, who wants to be remembered for the worst thing they did as an undergraduate? You know, I, I certainly don't. <laughs> so, sure. so, you know, I, I think he, I, 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 he redeems himself in the end, you know, uh, for all the great work he's done over the years. And I think he does in the book, but he's, he is, he's the villain in the early chapters of the book. You yeah. Know? So let's move on to Houston Smith. Who, yeah. Yeah. Um, Houston was born in Suchow, China. Yes. Which yes. had a, an amazing, you know, certainly influence on his life. Yeah, yeah. He was the son and the grandson of Methodist missionaries in China. And he spent, he and his brothers spent their whole childhood in China. He never saw the United States until he came. 17 years. Yeah, 17 years until he came here to go to a little Bible college in the Midwest. And... uh he intended to, you know, get a get a you know degree, a Bible college kind of degree, <laughs> yes. and go back to China as a missionary because that's what men, that's what American men did. That's all he'd ever seen. That was, his yes. father was his only role model. Right. Um, but he got to this little town and in, in, in Iowa, uh, this college, and you know, he tells us before that uh, he had yeah. some, he had some really. Uh, deep fever experiences in oh that's in, true in yeah he had he was affected he, he had a high fever uh and he, that's when he really had his first what i guess you could call it all visionary or out of body experience was what, what, what was in china and, and of course he was he was he was you know they were living in this little village and he was exposed to the you know the chinese popular religion you know which is Taoism of a sort you know popular Taoism, not your philosophical Taoism. Yeah. but so you know it was it must have been a pretty magical <laughs> mysterious world he was growing up in in, in in some ways and you know as he was one of the one of the men who really brought east and west together so it's uh, kind of fitting that he you know that that's <laughs> that's happened in his life too yes um yeah uh, the uh so he was off to the U.S. at seventeen. He went wound up in Fayette, Missouri. Missouri oh, it was Missouri. Okay, I, at this yeah, little yeah. little uh, Bible college. Bible, Bible college, right, right. And uh, as he tells the story, you know, it was this little podunk little town, but to him, it was bright lights, big city. <laughs> you know, yes, this sir. was America, and uh, so he quickly decided he didn't want to return as a, a missionary, but he still wanted to be a minister. And uh, so he continued his studies, and then at a certain point, he decided that really teaching, not preaching, was his vocation. He became he he became interested in the work of uh, uh, Henry Nelson Wyman. Yeah, it was this whole but, movement to try to reconcile science and religion. That's what that's what a lot of the theologians were were were, were working on. That he became a real devotee of, of of his work and wound up marrying the guy's daughter. And, yeah, to he met, that's Wyman's where he met Kendra. Yeah, that's where it was his daughter. And Kendra uh, was this young, you know, uh, what. 18-year-old, 20-year-old. Right, uh, and this is in woman. the 40s, and she's calling herself a Buddhist already. I mean, yes. she was interesting, too. And she was a, she's a, a, a psychic, and she's interested in, she's a whole story in herself, Kendra. Yeah. You know, she's she, been sort of behind the scenes in Houston's career. But yeah. You recovered notes where she had said uh, she wasn't sure about this guy. Yeah, she yeah. She wasn't sure about <laughs> yeah. Houston. Uh, yeah, he, he was kind of straight-laced straight guy. Laced, yes, yeah, right. yeah. I mean, uh, well, you know, he had a very conservative. His parents were very conservative, you know, Methodist. Yes. Know, missionaries, and uh, but they're st they're both still around. They're still married. You know, yes. it's got to be sixty, going seven seventy, decades, seventy yeah. years. Yeah, seven yeah. decades. Yeah, yeah. Houston and uh, yeah, Kendra. Yeah. And they're okay. still living in. Uh, a, uh, they're still living on their house on Calusa Street in, in Berkeley. And uh, yeah, he still gets around. He's you know he's had some health problems. Of course, it's hard for him to get around. But Houston still he came, he came to my reading in uh, Berkeley for the oh, book. Great, yeah, great. I, I had a, I arranged to have a car get him and bring him down to to great. the reading in. Berkeley. So that was great. That's yeah, nice. Yeah. yeah. So at some point, um, he connected with uh, 
Gerald Hurd and Tribuco College. Yeah. So uh, I think what was really more of an influence uh, than Wyman was 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 Gerald Hurd and Aldous Huxley were really his uh, Houston Smith's uh, early influences. Houston was at Berkeley. Uh, like Leary had been, uh, going for his PhD, writing his PhD thesis, which dealt with the problem of pain and and theology and pain. And uh, so he was at the main library in Berkeley, at Dow Library, looking through the old card catalogs, of course, long before computers, uh, for any book that had pain in the title. And he stumbled across this book called Pain, Sex, and Time, which got his attention (laughs) by this guy named Gerald Hurd, who he'd never heard of. Yes. And... (laughs) And um, so he read the book and was just amazed at the the ideas that Gerald Hurd had and went back and started reading uh, Hurd's other books, which start back in the 20s. And this book in 1929 called The Ascent of Humanity, which was kind of his first breakthrough book, and uh, became Houston became a Gerald Hurd junkie at that point. <laughs> yeah, well, let's continue our exploration of Houston Smith in just a moment. I'm speaking with Don Latin, and he's the author of The Harvard Psychedelic Club. How Timothy Leary, Ram Dass, Houston Smith, and Andrew Weil killed the 50s and ushered in a new age for America. And if you'd like more information, you can go to the website donlatin.com. And Latin is don, L-A-T-T-I-N, dot com. You can also get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. My name is Michael Thompson, and you're listening to New Dimensions. My guest is Don Latin. He's the author of The Harvard Psychedelic Club, How Timothy Leary, Ram Dass, Houston Smith, and Andrew Weil Killed the 50s and Ushered in a New Age for America. And if you'd like more information about Don's work, you can go to the website. That's donlatin, L-A-T-T-I-N.com, donlatin.com. You can also get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. Don, we were talking about Houston Smith, and he had become enamored of uh, uh, Gerald Hurd. yes. So yes. that had led him to uh, find him, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, Houston vowed to read every book Gerald Hurd had written, which this is the 40s. There were still at least a dozen of them, and they're, they're substantial books, and then to meet the man. So he read all the Hurd's work. Um, and what, what, what interested him about Hurd was Hurd's basic point was that humanity had the potential for a break, great breakthrough in human consciousness. And uh, for for a while, uh, Houston was very uh, enamored by that idea. He later moved on to maybe some other philosophies, like you could say. But but uh, anyway, he uh, he decided to track down Gerald Hurd, and he wrote his publisher in England, not realizing that Hurd had come to America in 1937. This is in the mid 40s, right? Yes. With uh, with Aldous Huxley, and that they had settled in Southern California, and were this group that had come to be known as the British metaphysical expatriates, Christopher yes. Isherwood, Gerald Hurd, Aldous Huxley, and, and others. This was during World War II. Um, and uh, so, and, and, and he tracked down uh, Gerald Hurd at this place called Trabuco College of Prayer, which was in the Santa Ana Mountains, southeast of Los Angeles. Gerald Hurd had just founded this uh, kind of interfaith retreat center, Way ahead of its time, 
uh, a prototype for Esalen Institute, actually, and other other things. So uh, Houston had his first teaching job in Denver at the time. This is, I think it was 1943, 44. People can't agree on the year. <laughs> Back and yeah. forth on that sometime around then. And uh, hitchhiked all, he had no money. He was still paying off his college debts. He hitchhiked all the way to L.A. and tracked down... Um, uh, Gerald Hurt at 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 uh, Trabuco College of Prayer and had an interesting encounter with them. It was a lot of it was done in silence. They just sat on the edge of this canyon in silence and uh, and uh, and through that meeting he hooked up with Aldous Huxley. Well, that, what was interesting too is that yeah. I think Gerald Hurt they'd all become enamored of Swami Prabhupada Yes, at yes. the Vedanta Society. Well, they had been. They'd had a little falling out with the Swami. But uh, yeah, when they first came, uh, they first came in the 19, 1937, they arrived in Southern California. And yes, yeah, Swami Prabhupada um, who was a disciple of Vivekananda, who had come during the World Parliament of Religions in 1893, which is really the beginning of this story in a yes. way, when East first meets West. Americans had never heard of any of this stuff, yes. Zen monks and right. yoga, and all, they'd never heard of it. Um, anyway, so, uh, but that was all the rage in the 20s in, in Hollywood. Uh, the, uh, there was a, sort of like the 60s. I mean, there was a whole wave of interest in, in Eastern religion. And uh, so, so Prabhupada had set up uh, the Vedanta Temple in um, in Hollywood. There was another temple in Santa Barbara, and uh, so yeah. So Heard and Huxley both lectured a lot. Uh, they they were, I wouldn't exactly call them disciples of Prabhupada. They were more like kind of uh, colleagues in a way. Yes, uh, they both influenced each other. Uh, and Gerald Hurd did a lot to to popularize because uh, Hurd was a big name at the time. No one's people have forgotten Gerald Hurd, but I mean his books were reviewed in the New York Times. I mean he was a lead. He was one of the leading intellectuals in England between the wars, and then once he got to, to Southern California. He fell off the map in the 60s, but uh, he's very influential in a lot of ways. And, uh, and of course, so is Huxley. Uh, Huxley, at, Huxley got interested in philosophy and religion through Heard. I mean, Huxley was a very cynical, skeptical, kind of a satirist, social satirist in his early books. Yes. Uh, some people in the literary establishment like his like his earlier books before he got kind of got religion because <laughs> yes. there's, there's more of an edge to them you know anyway it was through gerald Hurd's influence that huxley got interested in all this and actually the book the perennial philosophy which is uh huxley's first big book about religion and philosophy was written at trabuco college of prayer he's he 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 uh, locked himself in the room of the uh, gerald Hurd's library and went through gerald Hurd's library of mystical texts which was an incredible collection yes which is actually still there by the way wow at what's now called ramakrishna monastery um uh, and that's what—that's how the parental philosophy came to be written. Um, and and Houston uh, had just read that book, or, or maybe right after he met Huxley, because it was about the same time. And that really got Houston interested in the world's religions, and uh, and then influenced his later work. When Huxley got there, when he when he stayed there for a few several days, and then Huxley, well, you need, you know, you, I'm sorry, you missed all this. He he he's. He's not he, he, but he's out on the road there on near Lano. The Lano. Yeah. Well, no, is. no. What happens? Heard gave Heard gave Houston uh, Huxley's number in Hollywood, uh-huh. and so he he went back into uh, Trabuco is about sixty miles away. So he made it somehow hitchhiked, I guess, or took a bus or something. Got back into into uh, L.A. Called the number. Huxley wasn't there. The housekeeper gave him his number f- out at his retreat in. Uh, 
uh, in the Mojave Desert. And so I uh, said, Huxley gave him directions. Take the bus out towards San Bernardino. About halfway through the desert, you'll see these shacks on the right. And ask the bus driver. He'll know. And yes. and it was actually, he was living in the ruins of this old uh, socialist utopian co- colony, which is interesting for Huxley since he was a, so much of a utopian. <laughs> utopian the Lano uh, ruins. Uh, yes. The Lano ruins. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's so Huxley. Uh, uh, Houston had his first encounter with Huxley that same week. Uh, out there. And this becomes important for my story because later on, about a decade later, or 15 years later, in the late 50s, early 60s, uh, Houston, who who remained friends with Huxley and Hurd over the years, invited Houston, late in his life, to come to MIT to deliver a series of commemorative lectures uh, at MIT. So he was there for two or three months just happened to be the exact same time that Timothy Houston Leary... Houston invited Aldous, right? Yeah, Houston yeah. invited Aldous. Houston invited uh, Aldous to come to MIT. And uh, at, at, the, at the exact same time that Leary, fresh from a trip in Mexico where he first took psilocybin mushrooms, was beginning the psychedelic drug research at Harvard. So there was this amazing coming together of characters in Cambridge in the fall of 1960. Also the, the month that Kennedy was elected. Yes. President, so something was in the air. Yes. <laughs> something was definitely in the air. The sixties were beginning. It was the fall of nineteen sixty. So. And and then Huxley was there for like a couple months during the summer. Right, right. In the and, fall, yeah. And, and <clears throat> at some point, I think it was what it was that the Larry was going to meet Aldous and Gerald Hurd at a restaurant or something. Come meet him, meet them. Uh, tell, tell us about that. That it was this invitation to come see him and. And and I guess uh, Houston had met Leary, and he had Leary had been dressed in a suit, and he had these white tennis shoes. He was just right, right, right. Well, that was actually that was Houston. That was Houston when Houston met met Leary. Yeah, he right, had the white yeah, tennis right. shoes. Did you want that's what you want, a story about when Houston and Leary met? Uh, which which one were we ta- would you were talking about? When, well, when, well, well, Houston. Okay, let's talk about Houston and Leary. Yeah, well, Houston and, and so uh, actually. Uh, I think Huxley had heard that uh, that Leary, that some guy named Leary had started this drug research at Harvard, you know, right down the road from MIT where he was staying, and um, and through, so, through, so through Houston, uh, they introduced uh, they introduced them, and Leary, Leary, of course, wanted to meet Aldous Huxley, the guy who wrote the Doors of Perception. So this was this incredible, you know, sort of uh, you know, synchronicity, this coming together of, of, of characters. Yes, right. And they met at this Boston restaurant, and, and Huxley brought along uh, Humphrey Osmond, who happened to be in town. Humphrey Osmond was a British Canadian LSD early LSD researcher, and he's the one who administered the mescaline to uh, Aldous Huxley on his trip in 1953. And he also happened to be in town. <laughs> Amazing. It's the night, and it was the night Kennedy was elected, and so they met at a they met at a Boston restaurant. Uh, Timothy Leary, Houston Smith, and Humphrey Osmond, and uh, uh, they they were thinking that here's maybe this is the guy who could carry the carry the torch, carry the psychedelic torch, and um, they later come to see Leary as a little too much of a megalomaniac and had a lot of problems with his idea that everyone should take LSD. But at the time, the funny thing, the funny part of the story is they, Leary didn't wear his white tennis shoes to that meeting He because he didn't want to, he was so concerned about by making a good impression with, with Aldous Huxley and, and Humphrey Osmond that he, I think he contained himself. And so after the meeting, which he didn't normally do, yes. after the meeting, they said, he's a little, little stuffy, isn't he? 
which no one ever said of Leary, you know. Right, but yeah. later they saw another side of of of, of Leary. But that was the. But it was also it was Aldous Huxley who gave Leary the Tibetan Book of the Dead, which was very influential because that's the book that they used as the basis of the psychedelic experience, which was co-written by Ralph Metzner, Richard Alpert, and Timothy Leary, which was the first kind of guide to how to take an LSD trip in the '60s and was very influential. A lot of people, you know, use that for their first LSD trip in the 60s, and it was, based, it was based on the Tibetan Book of the Dead, which they had gotten from, from Aldous Huxley. So you can trace all this back, to, and you can trace it back to Gerald Hurd from there. So yes. that's another reason. Well, it's I think interesting that Metzner was involved with Alpert yeah. and Leary, and Metzner turned out to become the, the uh, uh, more, like, more of the academic one, more the, the chronicler in uh, the way, what he wrote about. I mean, he went... Basically, he left the project and became enamored of uh, another, you know, kind of uh, Eastern religion. Agni Yoga, I think, was the— Yeah, l- later on. But this, but yeah. he stuck with them through Millbrook after they got kicked right. out of Harvard. Yeah, right. so he was with them through the—he was actually with them through much of the 60s. Yeah. Uh, he went to India with, with Leary. Uh, yeah. I think '65, but yeah, Ralph. Ralph was one of the grad. Ralph Metzner was one of the graduate students, probably the lead graduate student. Um, he's probably and he's a co-author of the psychedelic experience. He's probably the one who wrote it. I yes. mean, Ramdas admits he had very little to do with it. He said he was in you know the kitchen, you know, <laughs> making dinner or something. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Ralph. I had a, a couple of good interviews with Ralph for for the book, um, and yeah, I almost felt bad his name wasn't on the cover because he was really a leading member of. The Harvard Psychedelic Club, more so than certainly more so than Andy Weil, but uh, but publishing being as it is, they wanted to put the famous names on the covers. <laughs> sure, right. So um, then, so what? Ha- so Houston, essentially. I mean, let's just sort of wind up with Houston okay. here. Uh, so he basically. Well, Houston wanted to try try psychedelics himself. Yes, uh, he here's a guy who'd been writing about the psychic, the, the 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 mystical experience for years. He'd been interviewing mystics, and but he even though he'd practiced yoga for quite a few years, ever since his encounter with the Vedanta Society in the 40s, he'd never really had what he would call a full blown mystical experience like he'd read about. And of course, he'd read Doors of Perception, and so he was very. Uh, and Huxley didn't, and Osmond, I guess they didn't have any mescal on them at the time, and they couldn't give him any. So, so through Leary, he had his first, he had his first uh, uh, LSD, uh, not LSD, I'm sorry, mescal, uh, psilocybin trip, which was uh, happened to be on New Year's Day, nineteen sixty sixty one. New Year's Day, nineteen sixty one. And when Houston t- tells that story, I mean, he's his eyes light up like a little kid now, and he says, "Oh." Don, what a way to start the 60s. Uh, <laughs> so, really? so that was the beginning of their association, yeah, which went on for a few years. I'm speaking with Don Latin, and he's the author of the Harvard Psychedelic Club. And he's also the author of a number of other books, including Jesus Freaks, A True Story of Murder and Madness on the Evangelical Edge, Following Our Bliss, How Spiritual Ideals of the 60s Shape Our Lives Today. And he's co-author of Shopping for Faith, American Religion in the New Millennium. If you'd like more information about Don's work, you can go to the website, donlatin.com. That's L-A-T-T-I-N.com, donlatin.com. You can also get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. My name is Michael Toms, and you're listening to New Dimensions.
My guest is Don Latin. He's the author of the Harvard Psychedelic Club. And that's who we're talking about, the Harvard Psychedelic Club. And uh, winding up with Houston Smith, who we were talking about previously, Don, um, he went on, of course, to become uh, you know, the famous author of, of, at the time, Religion of Man, Now the World's Religions, which is you know, has sold, what, three million copies? Yeah, two, three million copies. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. And he's become essentially the world's authority on the world's religions. Yes, he, he really is. His book is used as a textbook. You know, it's influential in a lot of ways. But also, it's a text, still used as a textbook for a lot of, you know, religion 101, you know, world religion 101 courses at colleges. So, it's still in print after all these years. Yeah, it was actually printed in 58. So, it was right after that that he met Leary. And, uh, but the book was just starting to, to, to take off at the time. And so, as I mentioned, he had this uh, amazing... Um, a psychedelic experience with Timothy Leary at his house in Newton, Massachusetts, on John January first, nineteen sixty-one, and then people sort of forget because Houston didn't talk about it for a long time. Houston was very closely involved with Leary and Alpert for a year or two. He was on the board of directors of a couple of the organizations that they set up, but uh, Houston started seeing some troubling signs in this. In, in, in among Leary, I mean, he saw a certain megalomania in the man, which a lot of people would would, would notice, and questioned this idea that uh, I mean, Leary's idea was this was a question of human freedom, cognitive freedom. Everyone should have the right to take LSD, and everyone should take LSD. And in my opinion, and also in Houston's, everyone shouldn't take LSD. It can yes. be very uh, damaging psychologically if you're not prepared for it and not taken in proper circumstances. So, uh, and and Houston was questioning whether the this was really a, an authentic religious experience that people were having. This was this was a big question at the time. Or are these experiences people are having uh, the same as a mystical experience or religious experience? Um, because people would report the same kind of things, like senses of war. Wonder and awe, transcendence, uh, uh, empathy, um, and I, I, I mean, I think Houston came to the uh, conclusion that yes, the experience may be the same, the the brain chemistry may be the same, whether you're having this experience through meditation, or mescaline, or you know, fasting, or sensory deprivation, or prayer, or whatever it is, this experience is the same, but that's not really the important question. The important question is, what do you do with the experience? And how does it affect the way you live your life? Are you living your life with more awareness and compassion after the experience? In Houston, who was already an ordained Methodist minister, a man of the spirit, he didn't see a lot of this, in, in especially in Leary. And what was going on in this, this early movement, which was pretty hedonistic. I mean, it was pretty wild. It was the beginning of the sexual revolution, and there was a lot of partying going on. Yes. And, and Houston, among Albert and Leary, and Houston was a married man. And, you know, he was conservative in a sense. I mean, he wasn't theologically conservative, but, uh, you know, socially he was pretty conservative. So, for, for various reasons, he separated himself out. And then he didn't really like to talk about that, because he also realized it's not good for your career to be associated with Timothy Leary at a certain yes. time. Later in life, though, Houston did put out a book called Cleansing the Doors of Perception, where he put together some of his early writings around this and some other work he did with Native Americans. The one exception he made later in his career was he was a great supporter of the Native Americans' uh, uh, campaign to restore their yeah. religious freedom by the peyote ceremonies yes. and got very involved with that. And, and, and the Indians, the Native Americans won uh, that, uh, that round. Yes. Uh, religious Freedom Restoration Act was enacted, so it was a great victory for, for cognitive freedom. But in the context of a culture where that really does come out of, of the culture naturally. Yes, um, exactly. Yeah. 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 The, uh, um, 
So here we are, uh, back to Richard Alpert. Richard Alpert, uh, yes. I think oh. Alpert. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, uh, of course, his life uh, was in some ways uh, uh, because he came from wealth. Uh, yeah, his father was a wealthy lawyer. Yeah, uh, and uh, he basically was groomed to be uh, – what grooming to be his father? I think wanted him to be a medical doctor. Medical doctor, yeah. yeah. And he was interested in psychology, social psychology, and uh, um, yeah. So uh, Alpert uh, winds up at, at at Harvard through through an association with David McClellan, just like uh, yes. just like Leary. And in the early '60s, when Leary shows up uh, to start his brief tenure at at Harvard, uh, Dick Alpert. The man who would be Ram Dass was a rising, you know, he's very, uh, you know, climbing the uh, academic ladder. You know, he was yes. he was ambitious. You know, he wa- he was a Harvard professor. He thought he he had a beautiful apartment, you know, with antiques. He had an MG and another car. He had his own airplane. He had a Cessna airplane, a motorcycle. You know, it was the swinging '60s, and he was starting out. You know, life in the fast lane, and yes. and uh, but wasn't really satisfied with his life. Basically, and a lot of wasn't really satisfied with the the sort of persona he was projecting as this psychology professor. He didn't really believe his own story, in a way. And he was also struggling with his sexuality. He was a gay man living in the closet and struggling struggling with that. And uh, in the midst of all that, Timothy Leary drops into his life with psychedelic drugs. And and Alpert has quite an awakening, and he has some real insight into his into his self, into his sexuality. And... Uh, and uh, and start really starts this whole new phase in his career, and he does get in as we've talked about before. He gets a little trouble with this Ronnie Winston, and and does get fired. He's Leary actually wasn't wasn't technically fired from Harvard. People always say he was, but Alpert was fired from yes. the faculty at Harvard. And of course, as we all know, uh, later on in the '60s, um, Richard Alpert he, well, he comes out to San Francisco like everyone else did, with or without flowers in their hair, in 1966, 67, and and the, that, that whole scene was going on. Alpert was very involved with that. Uh, as Leary was to a lesser degree. But then uh, he really wasn't satisfied with his life and didn't think drugs were the answer, or weren't the total answer at least. And so he went off to India um, more as a tourist than a pilgrim initially. But he has an encounter with a guru there called Neem Karoli Baba, uh, which changes his life forever, much more than LSD or Timothy Leary ever did. And a great story of him giving... uh Neem Karoli Bobby, a, a thousand mics of acid. Right, right. Who, <laughs> who, uh, who supposedly took it and nothing happened. There's a whole side. I don't know if I got it in the book. I can't remember. But some people think he never actually took it. That he palmed it and he put it in the soup at, <laughs> at the ashrams where everyone was having a mystical experience. That's one version of the story. But what, whatever happened, uh, it transformed the life of Richard Alpert. And uh, so he stayed there a few years, took several trips to India, and returns, reincarnated himself in a way as Baba Ramdas, and really goes on to become one of the most influential spiritual teachers of my generation. By that, I mean the baby boom generation, especially people who were interested in involved with psychedelic drugs. He showed a lot of people a way to build on that experience through kinder and gentler <laughs> ways to explore 
those realms. Yeah, he was he had this ability to be very articulate. He was a very he articulate. He was very articulate and he was charming. He was funny. He's self-deprecatory. You know, he's got that kind of Jewish comic thing going too. Yes, you know, right. but in a spiritual way. Yes. <laughs> and no, he 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 did some great work and got involved in a lot of charities over the years. He he never made any money. He could have made a fortune. You know, I've as as a journalist covered the New Age movement. I know a lot of people who were in this for the money, and of course he never was. You know, yes. he never was. And uh, Gave all the money to various foundations that did charity, charitable work, and um, and, um, and 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 yeah. So he really took this in a, a, a spiritual direction. Um, I mean, in the book, I I, I have I, I have sort of archetypes I use to describe these four characters, which are healer, teacher, trickster, and seeker. And uh, Albert is, is is the seeker, and in a way, he always seemed like just another seeker. He never seemed like an all-knowing guru. That was part of his appeal. Too, you know, yes. uh, you, you could relate to him better than than some of these other uh, teachers. Yeah. And then, of course, he had later in life he had a stroke. You went in that. Yeah, he had a he. Hawaii. Yeah, which was such a tragedy because he was like you mentioned, he was so articulate, and the stroke just really crippled his uh, speaking abilities. He still had the he still had the, the you know, his mind was still there, but he just couldn't express the thoughts. Also, paralyzed half of his body. Yes. But the worst part of it was he lost his ability to really speak. Um. Uh, he jokes about it. He was actually about to start a radio state radio show at the time. Yes. <laughs> and he says, "Well, there goes radio." After that, I mean, he's laughing about it. You know, yes. it's just, which is great if you can laugh about it. Um, but but he's still around. I mean, he's had some other health problems, and uh, but he's living in Maui now, and he's he's doesn't plan to leave or go anywhere. So, but there's still some people. He still leads a few retreats. He started that just recently, um, and um, he has a presence on the web. He does does webcasts from Maui. Uh, he has a new book that's coming out too, uh, and there's also a 40th anniversary edition of Be Here Now, which is coming out. Same publisher, Har- Harper One. So he's still he's still out there. I mean, you know, but yes. he's he's had some serious health problems in the last decade. So how about yourself? I mean, uh, with all this exposure, did what? What did, did you <laughs> did you wind up doing something? Well, I did do a lot of psychedelics back in the day, and I, I actually write about it in the afterword of the yes. book. About you know, uh, it's not just a good trip and then a bad trip. It was actually much more than that. It was sort of the, for me, uh, and I was very young. I was I was a freshman in college myself at Berkeley at the time, and and uh, I had I had just an incredible experience, revelatory experience, life changing experience, and then I had another trip. Your kind of bad trip from Central Casting, which was which was really. Sort of, like I would call it a psychotic break, and I was really messed up for a few months, wondering if I was ever ever going to reclaim my sanity. It was a very scary yes. time in my life. Um, but I came to see both experiences and other experiences I had later with other drugs uh, as really part of a long process of spiritual conversion in a way for me. I know I was always a newspaper guy. I was, you know, I. I haven't had any drugs, including alcohol, in three or four years. I've actually kind of stopped all that in, in recent years. But uh, so I honor, I honor the place of psychedelic drugs in my life. I'm also very cautious about drugs, especially other other kinds of drugs and alcohol, what they can do to people. And of course, we saw so many people in the '60s who were crippled from the drug experiences in the '60s. Maybe it started with LSD and we went on to you know speed, heroin, other drugs. There were there's so many casualties that uh, I was careful in the book to not come across as like a proselytizing that people take these drugs especially in a haphazard way yes and i always want to i always want to stress that because you know there are some beautiful experiences that you know uh that you can have but there's there's a there's a shadow side there it's heaven and hell yes. <laughs> be ready for 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 either one well it's clear that 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 what they did what you wrote about it did 
definitely change our world. Yes. And we are definitely there. So uh, I've been speaking with Don Latin, and he's the author of the Harvard Psychedelic Club. And you can find more information by going to the website, donlatin.com, L-A-T-T-I-N.com. And you can also get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. My name is Michael Toms, and you've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3361. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You, too, can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions. Dimensions.